We're returning again tonight to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, we're again reading at verse 14. Romans 7, verse 14. Let's hear the Lord's inspired word. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law. When I would do good... Evil is present with me, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And the Lord add his blessing to that reading from his word for his name's sake. Would you bow with me for a moment, please? Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, in the name of Jesus Christ, thy Son, I ask for thy blessing to fall upon the preacher and upon the people. I pray that thou wilt sanctify this time in thy word, and thou wilt use the word to sanctify our souls. We pray for grace to preach and grace to hear and grace to receive the engrafted word with that Christ-like meekness. Lord, wherever there is even the whiff of unteachableness, we pray that thou wilt drive it away. We want, Lord, to know what it is to really sit at the feet of Jesus Christ, to have the Holy Ghost be the one who enlightens our understanding. And Lord, not only that we grasp the meaning of Scripture, but that the scripture grasps our wills, our thinking, our life, controlling us, directing us, sustaining us. For this is the bread of life, the very word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. We began last Lord's Day evening uh, to look from this passage in Romans 7 about the Christian 
and his great dilemma. It's on. Don't ask me. I'm my uh, mic is on. I'm good on this end. So uh, the sound booth guy just went like this, almost like a Roman Catholic. He didn't cross himself like this, however, but it was just up and down. But anyway, mic's on. So if that isn't working, you have to use the pulpit mic. That's all I can say. That set aside, we began to look at this subject of the Christian and his great dilemma from Romans chapter 7. And uh, if, if you were a bit perplexed at where I was coming from last week at the beginning, as my wife said she was, then you're really going to be perplexed this evening as we return once again to, to look at that. Who, who is the old man, do you think? The old man mentioned by Paul. Look in Romans and in Colossians and Ephesians. Put off the old man. Who's the old man? What is the old man? Back in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul has uh, stated in very plain language that our old man is crucified with Christ. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Our old man is crucified with Christ for whatever reasons. And I have no idea what the reasons are. Now, you're going to have to just stick with me very closely to get where I want us to be to get into the message. For whatever reasons, the translators uh, in the 17th century gave us the 1611 authorized version. They missed a very important tense when they came to that word crucified. I don't know why, but they did, because it doesn't say is crucified. It says was crucified. Our old man was crucified with Christ. And that means the old man is dead. Truly, literally dead. The confusion that comes in when we make an incorrect use of the term old man in Romans 6 by equating it with the flesh or the body of sin in Romans 7. Either the old man was put to death in Christ or he wasn't. It's one or the other. He was actually crucified with Christ, or he wasn't. If he wasn't crucified with Christ, he's still alive. But Paul says he was crucified with Christ. I believe that the old man in Romans 6 is not the flesh. It's not this body of sin that he's dealing with in Romans chapter 7. I believe the old man is what we were in Adam. In Adam, we were condemned by the law because the term in Adam in the New Testament is a description of what God's people are when they were unrighteous, when they were unjustified freely by God's grace. 
To be in Adam is to be in sin. To be in Adam is to be under condemnation. We were born in Adam, condemned in Adam. That old man was crucified in Christ. Romans 5 is the great exposition of that truth. But, but the new man is the believer in Christ. As in Adam, all die, right? So in Christ shall all be made alive. In Christ, in Adam. In other words, the old man refers to what we were in our unregenerate, unrighteous, unjustified state. That was the old man. That was the old us. But something happened when we were born from above. Something happened when we were born again by the Holy Ghost. When we were, theologically speaking, the re regenerated. We became a new creation. A new man was created. So... The new man is the believer justified in Christ, no longer condemned. The old man's condemned, that's in Adam. But Christ has justified us, and we're in Christ, and that is synonymous with our justification. And, and the point just now to what we've been dealing with about this Christian's great dilemma, his great problem is, what is the result of that justification? What was the result of the new man being created? Here's what Paul says. Our old man was crucified with Christ. That, there's purpose now, in order that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth, from here on out, we should not serve sin. We should not be the servants of sin. So, in essence, our justification, being declared righteous by God, now forever being treated as righteous as Christ himself, uh, a, a, a legal declaration, okay, that's something that takes place outside of us. Get this one down, this is, this is important. Justification is an act of God that takes place outside of us. He declares us to be righteous, always in his sight, as far as his law concerned, no sin, no condemnation. You are as righteous as my son, and that's how I will forever treat you. But that justification always results in an inward work, not act, an inward work of grace by the Holy Spirit. We call it sanctification. Justification always leads to sanctification. The very purpose of, as we reflected upon, all you'd have to do is flip over a page to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Predestinated by God, to be like Jesus. And Paul will take it up in Ephesians chapter 1. We have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. For what purpose? That we should be holy and without blame. Righteous. Before him in love. That's the purpose. Chosen in Christ 
before the foundation of the world in order that we should be holy. So the Apostle Paul says the old man was crucified so that sin would no longer be our slave master. We would no longer be slaves to sin. Servants, bond slave, that's the Greek word, doulos. No longer. He makes it absolutely clear in verse 14 where he writes that sin shall not have dominion over you. He says in verse 22, the believer has been made free, free from sin. But someone raises the question, doesn't Paul tell the Ephesians to put off the old man? And if you tell someone to put off the old man, doesn't it mean he's still alive? That's why I ask you the question, who do you think the old man is? Well, he does tell the Ephesian believers to put off the old man, but no, it doesn't mean that he's still alive. If I tell one of my children, stop being a baby, do I mean that they actually are a baby? No, I'm simply telling them to stop acting like a baby. You're not one, but quit acting like one. And when Paul tells us to put off the old man, he's simply telling us to quit acting like the old man would act. Put him off. He was crucified with Christ. Act like you're in Christ which you are. It's similar to what Paul told the church at Corinth. Ye are yet carnal, he said, and walk as men, as men. So God's word states that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things, there's our old man, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So he has someone who has been justified, has been made a new creation in Christ by the Holy Spirit. He loves things that he didn't love before, and he hates things that he didn't hate before. And he now has a new master, and he has these new interests and these new pursuits and these new desires. He has a new way of living now. It must be. And if it isn't, there's nothing new, is there? It's the same old, same old. In other words, this, this inward man, as he calls him, another name for him, this inward man, this, this new nature, this new man, because it is born of God, because it actually is a partaker of God's own nature, it naturally, naturally loves that which is a revelation of, of God's will, his desires. Because God's the master now. And it's no longer the flesh. One time you lived for the flesh. The flesh was your master. Sin was your master. You were a slave to your sin. And you loved it. You wanted to do it. All its forms. Didn't care about the consequences. But if the Lord saved you... That means there came a new master into your life, and now you want to please this new Lord. And so you look upon 
the law of the Lord as just and holy and good. That's the real point of my, my message last week. This is part of the dilemma. You know, you've got no problem with God's law. You don't want to change God's law. You don't want to water it down. You don't want to amend the Ten Commandments. You don't want to take certain ones out of it and say, oh, that's not for me. It's a different time. We have a different set of rules now, and we can just change them at will. No, 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 no. no it's, this is the book that regulates how we live. That's because justification leads to sanctification. But here's where the dilemma comes in. The Bible says that the Christian is freed from sin. He is no longer the servant of sin. That sin will not have dominion over him. And there is this corresponding sympathy in his heart that he hates sin. He hates it. And he loves the law. But he finds he does indeed continue to sin. And it's not once in a blue moon. It's every single day. He sins. He finds that the power of sin is still there. I mean, you read your Bibles. You don't read your Bibles. You don't, you don't think a whole lot about this. But the Bible says sin will not have dominion over you. And you're a new creation, and old things have passed away, and everything's become new. Then why do I have this problem of falling into temptation? Why? Why do I have these evil thoughts? And why do I say unkind things that as soon as I say them, I regret saying them? Why do I do that if I have been freed from the power of sin and Satan? That's a dilemma. It's a real one. The last thing we want to do is to run away from it. But we want to face it. How do we deal with sin in our lives? How can we be Christians if sin has such power over us? Do I really love the law of the Lord? If I seem to break it all the time. Such will be the turmoil that this dilemma creates. It's enough to drive the child of God into utter despair. That's why we ought to thank the Lord for what Paul writes in Romans chapter 7. He's bearing his heart. This is not Paul speaking about something in his past. He's using present tense all the time. This is something that he was facing, and he faced it daily. We turn from the Christian's character that we looked at last week, now to the Christian's conflict. Tonight, I only want us to look at the reason for the conflict, the reason for this conflict. When you begin to read to the first, the last half of Romans 7, you discover that Paul was a man who was in the midst of an ongoing battle. Perhaps I should say that there was a battle in the midst of Paul. The only reason you have a battle is because there are 
two opposing sides. There are two enemies who have opposing aims and interests. That's what creates a battle. There can't be strife, there can't be division if everyone's on the same page, right? In every true child of God, there is a battle that is raging. And the reason for that conflict is because within the heart of every child of God, there are two enemies. Who are they? Well, Paul, Paul uses various names to describe these two enemies. Sometimes he calls them the body of sin and the new man. All right. The body of sin and the new man. Sometimes he talks about the inward man and the outward man. Other times it's the spirit and it's the flesh that are warring. Here in Romans 7, the two enemies are under this denomination, law of his mind and the law of sin in his members. Those are the two enemies, the law in his mind and the law of sin in his members. Each of those are diametrically opposed to each other as contrary to night as to day and as good as to evil. To take the words of Paul in Galatians 5, he put it like this. For the flesh lusteth, the word there is warreth, against the spirit. Warreth against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary. The Greek word is adversary. And these two are adversaries to each other. They're opponents engaged in a war. So there is a war that's taking place in Paul's life. And if you're a child of God, there's a war taking place in your life. The reason for the Christian's great dilemma, it is this flesh, this law of sin, and our members that is constantly warring against the new man, this spiritual life, this law of our mind. The Christian's greatest enemy is plainly put, is the sin that dwells in his soul. Paul keeps saying, the sin that dwelleth in me, the sin that dwelleth in me. This body of sin, this is my big problem. It was his big problem, and it's your big problem. On every level, it is your biggest problem. Can you just imagine what life would be like in any given day of the week if you were without sin? Can you just imagine what a day would be like without the law of sin in your members warring against the law of the mind put there by the Holy Spirit. This is the reason for the conflict. It's the reason for the sorrows. It's the reason for the fears and the heartaches and the setbacks, the backslidings, the wandering off, the drifting away, Notice with me first place the presence of indwelling sin, its presence. Paul calls it a law. Verse 20, now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Verse 21, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Verse 23, I see another law. 
in my members, warring against the law of my mind. What does he mean by calling this the sin in him that dwells in him a law? Well, you know, in, in its strictest sense, a law is a, a rule that, that directs, that commands, uh, that is given to, to regulate our behavior. You know, you drive along the road and you see a sign says $250 fine for trash, whatever the wording is on the sign. You, that's, that's a law. Or you see a sign that says, no texting. It's against the law. So that's a law, a rule that's been given to regulate your behavior in mind. And we know there are consequences if we get caught. Breaking law. That's what the speed limit sign is for. As one preacher said to his son, Daddy, you're doing, you know, the sign says 60 and you're doing, well, son, that's just a suggestion. <laughs> no, no, it's not a suggestion. It's actually a law to regulate our behavior. Some things it commands, the law does. Some things the law forbids. And there are rewards and there are penalties which move men to do one or not do the other. But in a secondary sense, and this is how Paul is using this word law here, it means an, an inward principle uh, an inward habit that, that constantly moves and directs and inclines someone to a certain course of action. That's the law of his life. That's, that's how he lives his life. That's, that's his habit. There's, there is an inward principle by which he lives, through which he lives, that moves and directs and guides and regulates his life unto a certain course. You said that that's the law that guides that person. That's 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 the principle they live by. That's how he means it here. There is an effectual and very powerful working of the Holy Spirit in those whom he has given life to, and the grace of Christ on the hearts of his people. Paul calls in Romans chapter eight, verse two, the law. Listen now, the law of the spirit of life. That working, that principle, the law of the spirit of life. In verse 23 here in Romans 7, he calls this the law of my mind. So that Paul, this, I, I have this law. It's in my mind. It's in my soul. And, and this law is what's inclining me and moving me and directing me or holding me back to do or not do things that are agreeable to the nature of what? Of the law of God. That's what he's been saying all along, is it not? The law is just and holy and good. I've got no problem with the law. We saw that last week. That's what I was driving at the whole time. I have no problem with the law. I love the law. It's my delight. And that's the law of my mind. That, that's the bent of my inward man. It wants to do what pleases God. That law of the Lord is what I want to rule my life.
But there is also another law. There's another principle. Another driving force. He says it's in his members. It's in his body. And it too is a powerful and effectual indwelling principle that inclines him and presses him to do things that are agreeable to the nature of sin. Just like the law in his mind compels him, draws him into, uh, uh, gives him that ongoing desire to do the things that are compliant to the law of God, so this principle, this law in his body, in his members, in his flesh, I want to do what sin wants, what the flesh wants. So there's, bottom line is, there's every one of us tonight who are a child of God, there is this active and there is this sinister and there is this evil power that is constantly seeking to move us to do evil. It's there. Not only is it a law, But believers have personal experience of the power of this indwelling sin in its war against their spirit. It's personal experience. It's not simply theory. It's not something picked up in a sermon, in a Bible class, in a theological book. It's something they know in practice. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 21. I find then a law that when I would do good, when I want to do good, when I desire, so the word has it, to do good, evil is present with me. Again, verse 23, I see another law in my members. I see it. He found out from his own experience there was this law of sin within him. He had been told that there was such a law. It had been preached to him. And certainly this convicted him there was this law of sin. But Paul is saying here that he found this law in himself by personal experience. I have found by experience there is a power of indwelling sin in me. You see, you can be taught. You can be taught there is a power, an evil principle that inclines you towards sin. But it isn't until you've had to contend with it that you find it out by experience. What I'm saying is really if a man who hasn't discovered the power of indwelling sin is still under the dominion of that sin. You discover the power of indwelling sin when there's an adversary that rises up and opposes it. That's when you find its power. In order for an adversary to rise up and oppose it means there has been regeneration. There has been a new creation that's been made and the, the, the law of the spirit of life has been planted in that person and from that day forward the battle starts. But until that happens, there is no experience of what Paul is describing here is this power of indwelling sin. 
Thirdly, even though there is this law of sin that indwells the child of God, the habitual inclination of his will is set on that, it's fixed on that which is good and holy. He's got, he's got an enemy within. There's, a, there's a, a wicked, vile enemy that it's a law, it's a principle that wants nothing to do with righteousness, that only wants to sin and sin continually. Paul says in verse 21, even when he finds that evil is present with him, still I would do good. I want, I want to obey. There is in me a desire to obey the law of my God. There's an enemy and it wars against me. So much so that I do the things I hate and hate the things I do, but still, when that enemy roars greatly, and even when I fail, I want to please the Lord. The great bent, the great desire of his soul is to obey God's law. Fundamental mark of a Christian fundamental mark of a servant of the master. The moment Paul is saved on the Damascus road, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I just want to know what your will is. That is revelatory. Here is what in, in the believer's worst condition distinguishes him from the unbeliever in his best condition. I'm not denying that uh, there's no opposition in unbelievers to sin. There is. But it's an opposition that comes from their conscience, the guilt, and the light they have of what is right and wrong, and an opposition that arises from some of the consequences that just may come to them because, or have come to them because of their sin. There's been many an alcoholic that has cried many tears for his alcoholism because of the damage it's done. And he will want to join AA and sober up and follow the 12 steps because he knows where that's going to lead him, but doesn't mean he's saved. He has an opposition to drunkenness, and that's good, but that's not salvation. The attempt of believers, unbelievers, I should say, to try and live in such a way that gives them a clear conscience or to stay out of trouble is, it's a far cry from having this, this desire here to obey the Lord. This heart desire to please him. They, they will try and do better. 
That's the promise that Paul Manafort made to the judge last week. I promise, you go light on me, I'll do better. I mean, he didn't want to go off to prison for X number of years, so, yeah, he sees the consequences of his sins. But don't mistake that for a moment in anyone to say, well, that's the same thing that Paul is talking about. It's not. That's simply the conscience at work, not any spiritual inclination Desire that comes from their wills. There's no new principle of holiness. There's no new law that's in their hearts that brings that about. So here is this law of sin in our members. It it abides there. It's present with us. Right now, it's with you. It's present with you. You sit there and you listen. I stand and I preach. It is present with us. It hasn't gone away. It doesn't... When you walk in those doors back there, it doesn't say, oh, I can't go into church. That's too holy a place. Oh, it'll go with you wherever you go. It'll go with you to the place of prayer. It'll go with you to the word of God. It'll go to the most sacred spot in the world to you. It'll go with you. It'll be there. It dwelleth, he says, The word there is present active in the original language. It dwells continually in me. Never is there a moment when it's gone. In fact, if I ever come to the point where I think it's gone, it has really done a number on me. Because it's never gone. Wherever you are, Whatever you're about, the law of sin is always in you, always in the best that you do, and always in the worst that you do. It's always ready to exercise its desires. When you would do good, when you would obey, And you know what it is to do the good, and you want to do it, and you want to please the Lord. When you would do good, evil is present with you. And it's not just that it's always there, but that it is always ready to meddle and tries to meddle in any good that you will do and to impel you to do all kinds of evil. Sometimes we're shocked. I said that. I thought that. Know thyself. Because you did say it. And you did think it. And you did do it. And don't be shocked. Because evil. Evil. Evil is present with you. In fact, it's often the case when you have been most earnest in fighting against sin to get victory over sin, that sin 
has come with unusual power, stirring itself up. It's risen to the occasion because the new man has been stirred. The Spirit of God has stirred him to seek the Lord, to become more earnest in prayer, to become more serious about your Bible study, to become more earnest in witnessing to others and to speaking to the lost, and to go about doing good and showing the love of Christ to others, and you become more, more earnest about that. But at the same time, the same exact time, there that law of sin in your members sees the action being taken and rises up against it. That's why you find it difficult. That's why you started out in a few days it was changed, but then you stepped back into the same old, same old. You understand what I'm saying? There's a war. There's a war going on. This law of sin doesn't need any open doors. It doesn't need any outside influence. It has the power all on its own to incline us and move us to do evil. The devil will make use of it. I warrant you that it's one of his means of, of, of accomplishing what he seeks to accomplish. But this evil within us doesn't need the devil. <laughs> it wasn't the devil that made you do it. It was the sin that dwells within you. Because it's a law, it is absolutely unchangeable. You'll never be able to eradicate this sin principle. Never. There is a whole lot you and I can do to grow the strength of the new man. We'll talk about that down the road. There's a whole lot we can do there, but there is nothing that we can do to eradicate this old Stinking, rotten flesh. You can try to dress it up. Put a new face on it. But your flesh is always going to be your flesh. The sin that dwells within you will always be the evil that it is. Which makes you and I capable of of doing the greatest evil in the world. It's evil. We're born with it. It came through Adam. It's a sin nature. Nature. Now the procedure, the process, how it works, the paths it takes. This indwelling sin. 
If we're going to be able to deal with this great dilemma, it's a great one. You, 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 you can see now as you look at it in its plain nakedness, this is a real problem. And if we're going to deal with the problem b- biblically, then we need to know how it operates. How it operates in our lives and moves us to sin. The modus operandi of indwelling sin is to fight, it is to war against the new man. That's always the procedure it takes. Verse 23, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Or Paul said in Galatians 5, the flesh lusteth the wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So my, my, my point just now is that this, the sin that dwells within us, it, it's not playing a game. This principle of sin. I, I, I'm, the one that, I, I'm not the one giving life to this thing. I, it's, it's Paul that's painting it like this is an entity. It, it's alive within us. And it's a warrior, and it comes and it wars against this new man. And it's engaged in warfare. It's not, these are not war games. You know, countries engage in war games. These are not war games. This is the real deal. It's serious. Indwelling sin will act with violence if violence is needed. And use every weapon at its disposal to get you to sin. There's nothing off limits. There's no one off limits. There's no thing. There's no area that is too uh, precious. Oh, I can't go there. Don't you think it for one moment? Nothing, nowhere is off limits. That law... In the members will do anything to get you to sin. I think that we often fail, give little thought, that when we rise from the bed, each day we're called to a fight. I can understand that. I mean, we'd rather get up and say, oh, this is a wonderful, lovely day. It's going to be smooth sailing and the sun's going to shine and all the things that I want in life are going to come my way. I'm not going to have any hiccups and no disappointments and no problems. It's just going to be a sweet, sweet day. Wouldn't that be nice? But because evil is present with us continually, because evil is warring against the spirit, every day we get up, there's a battle we have to fight. And we're only playing the fool if we forget that. The carnal nature never rests. It pushes. It presses. It contends with all of its might. Its fighting consists in two things. One is rebellion. Paul has spoken of the law of his mind, but there is another law in his members that rebels against the law of his mind. It stubbornly, stubbornly 
And you might wonder, why? Why, why do I find that at times within me a, a stubborn opposition to the commands of the law of grace, of the law of the Lord? I mean, we really shouldn't have any problem with the law of the Lord, should we? We should embrace it and welcome it. Not, not, not oppose it, not resist it, not find it as burdensome. That's, that's the rebellion. It's the rebellion of the flesh. And the effect of that rebellion is that Paul tells us he, he does the things he would not, I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. Have you ever noticed, I'm sure you have, how this indwelling sin rebels against the, 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 the common, holy duties, obligations of the Christian life? Take, for instance, prayer. Oh, you, you would pray with all your heart. You would want to pray in the Spirit. And you would want to pray fervently. And you'd want to pray with great faith in God. And you'd want to pray with love to the Lord and delight in Him. And enjoy that hour in His presence. And rise to great heights of nearness to God. And pour out your heart before the Lord. You would desire that. But have you not found an unwillingness rising up your heart to go to pray when it's time to go to pray? A backwardness. And for all the desire to spend that precious time alone with the Lord in prayer, you hardly utter a word or stay on your knees more than five minutes. I don't say it's like that all the time, but I'll tell you one thing, there is always going to be rebellion of the flesh against prayer. The same would apply to the word of God. Oh, I'd want to be a student of the book. And for it to master me, and, and have all those verses memorized and know them off by heart. And get down into my Bible open and some good books to help me understand and learn and grow in that. But you start to do that and you watch the opposition rise. Things that will take your time just like that. You'll spend two hours watching some Hollywood flick and won't spend five minutes in the Bible. It's tragic, but that's reality. This sin is rebelling. Rebelling against the law of the Spirit. The house of God? You talk about a growing, a, a growing spirit of people just not wanting to, professing Christians just not wanting to go to the house of God to worship the Lord. 
There's a rebellion against the Lord's law. Not only rebellion, but there's attack. When Paul says in verse 24, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The word deliverance actually means rescue. I'm being attacked. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He needs deliverance to be rescued from it. And you and I were taken off guard for this attack comes when we really weren't expecting it. It, it comes sometimes right in the middle of the throne of grace and you're praying and something just rises up in your soul and your mind. It just wrecks and ruins your time for prayer. And that interest you had in reading the Bible that you started with, it quickly vanishes. Or we, 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 we go out away from the, the place of, of devotion, the place of private worship, or the house of God for public worship. It's been a wonderful time. Blessed and oh, the Lord spoke to me. And then something is said, something is done. The attack comes. And the thing you didn't want to do, you did. And the way you wanted to go out from the house of God or the place of prayer and live for the Lord, you didn't. Somehow we think we're immune, I think, at times. And that's why we get attacked when we least expect it. And we get attacked not only at our weak points, but at our strong points. Finally, the power of it, the power of this indwelling sin. Paul says it's so powerful that it had the power to bring him into captivity. Those are strong words in verse 23. I see another law of my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. You know, the clearest evidence of the power of any enemy is its ability to bring its adversary into captivity. That's success by anybody's standards. And this is a peculiar expression in scripture to speak of the great success, this bringing into captivity. You remember in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about that with Christ. After his resurrection, he led captivity captive. The idea led kept, it's not about bringing souls out of another compartment of Hades and taking them to heaven, <laughs> nothing to do with that. It's leading at the point of a spear, leading his enemies. It speaks of this great power it has to, to captivate, to make captive. And by his death, he conquered him who had conquered and brought others captive. And the old man, this 
not the old man, the old flesh. This law of sin in our members has this power to bring the spirit of life into captivity. A general description of life held captive. You've been there? Yes, there may be times in a believer's life when he may be led captive by some particular sin, as David was with Bathsheba. One year he, one year at least, he stayed in that state, unrepentant. That power of sin held him captive. Here's the thing you need to see. It actually was a captivity. It was a captivity. It therefore was against his will. I mean, you're only captive if it's against your will. Right? It's because you don't want to be the prisoner. Thank God for that. Every time you and I have been brought captive to this law of sin in our members, it has been against our wills. It's not where we have wanted to be. We've wanted to be out of the captivity. And we're not happy until we are. We're just absolutely miserable creatures. Why is that? Because we're new creations in Christ. Because there's this law of our mind, there's this principle of holiness that's within us. So here's the plain reason for the conflict. It's very real. How do we respond is the question. How do we deal with this? Dilemma. War manual here, folks. This is war manual. This is how the devil operates, how the flesh operates, and this is how we find out how the Spirit of God operates. God read his word on our hearts for his name's sake. If we bow our heads in prayer together, let's seek the Lord, Father in heaven. We do need thee every moment of every hour. We can't do, we cannot do without thee. Make us to feel, Lord, make us to feel more and more our absolute dependence upon Thee, upon the Holy Ghost, to war against this flesh within us. We don't want to be ignorant of either Satan's devices or the devices of the sin that's within. We do want to understand, Lord, how to deal with this enemy that will never be reformed, never be changed, never be redeemed. Show us, Lord, how to defeat, how to be delivered through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.